Hey everyone, it's Alan Schimmel and you're listening to another DevOps Chat. Got a really great DevOps Chat for you all today. I'm joined by a good friend of mine, a frequent contributor, one of the team at DevOps.com. None other than Bob Resselman, creator of the Rollbob cartoons, Bright Ideas TV, the, the creative force and brains behind shimmy tunes and as well as a writer in his own right, not only at DevOps.com, but at a lot of the leading tech companies out there today. So, Bob, welcome. Oh, thanks for having me, Alan. You know, I, I hope I didn't embarrass you with the uh, log on, but, you know, you're you're something of a renaissance man, right? Uh, uh, <laughs> give our right. a little bit of your, of your life history, your life story, Bob. Oh, yeah. Well, I I came to tech late. I came to tech in my early 30s. And the reason I got into it is because um, somebody told me that I could actually compose music on a computer. (laughs) And uh, no, it sounds funny, but if you're if you're you know, if you're a composer and I I don't mean back in the mini days, I I hear you. I know back in the mini days. And, um, you know, if you had like a string quartet or even something larger like an octet, to actually hear that going on, to hear it, was very hard. You had to go out and either hire a quartet to play or just be really good at imagining or be able to sit at a piano and be able to play some stuff. And I'm, I'm not the world's best pianist, so this um, medium, this technology, really opened up a world to me. And then one day I'm sitting around and I'm starting to play with this, and I'm writing you know, my, my string quartet and stuff, and I said, you know, I think I could probably do something with programming. And so I did. And actually, I started, I learned to program, and um, I'm one of those people that came in through the back door, and then eventually I ended up at uh, Gateway, at that time, Gateway 2000, and I Gateway came into... Cows, we remember it. Yeah, the cows, yeah, I went, I moved from Boston, Massachusetts, to uh, Sioux City, Iowa, which was a complete cultural transformation for me, <laughs> but every day I went into the future, this big, big building that we were making computers, and I, I learned a lot, and we can talk about that, too. Um and uh, during Gateway, I did. I was really doing a lot of stuff I shouldn't have been doing, but I did them anyway. And I mean that. I just I was I had sort of had to battle my way into technology, and they were very supportive. And I, I just learned a lot about some real hardcore tech working for that company. And for that, I'm very grateful. And so that that was around '98, around 2000. Um, I decided to move on. And I started doing big six consulting and then from big six consulting, I went into New York and I worked in the financial industry for a while. And I got good things along the way. Back around 1995, I published my first book uh, about VB programming. And um, public and writing has been very good to me. I still get those royalty checks every month. I can't complain. Um, so that's how I got here. That's how I got here. You know? um, and here I am today. So, Bob, over the... Over the last couple of years, I mean, look, we've been doing so. DevOps.com has been around four years. You've probably been doing writing and Rollbob stuff for what three years, two and a half years, something like that. Uh, I think three. I've been, we've been together for a while, Alan. It's been uh, you know the Casablanca of technology. What can I say? We're out yeah. of, we're on the runway, walking into the fog, right? <laughs> <laughs> Round up the usual suspects. Yeah, but, but Bob, you know, certainly with the advent of DevOps and a heavy emphasis on automation, but also it's not all DevOps. It's the world we live in, as, as mm-hmm. you're fond mm-hmm. of saying. Um, mm-hmm. You know, automation and the specter of increased automation over the uh, 
you know, not only near term, but long term is really it's a scary thing. It's scary for me as a parent with teenage boys in terms of, you know, what are they what are they going to do? Um, but it, it's scary for a lot of people, people in the workforce today. And it's something that you have really given a lot of thought to. You've written extensively about it. And I want that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I'm happy to do because I, I, I do think it's important and I think it's going to have a, a growing impact on a lot of people. We in technology, we've been sort of fortunate. Uh, we're, we're in the middle of it and we're pretty adept at, a, adept at adapting, actually, if that's a good term, but we pick up stuff pretty quickly and we're good at getting new stuff under our fingers very quickly. But there's a whole segment of the culture that has problems with it, to be honest. And, you know, let, let me be direct. Let me be direct here. My, my, my father, my father was a cab driver. Um, he was a cab driver. And when I look at what the um, Uber and Lyft are doing to the cab industry in New York City, it's pretty amazing. I mean, when he, his first medallion, I think, Cost him. I, I'm making these up. I don't have the actual data, but I think he paid two hundred fifty thousand dollars for his first medallion. And that back then, that was a lot of money. But it was there were only a set amount of taxi cabs on the street, and so that was a high value, was good investment. Today, because of uh, the uh, share, ride sharing, share services, the uh, con- the value of medallions is dropping dramatically. And that's just one impact of automation. Uber and, and uh, Lyft could not exist without uh, what I think three fundamental uh, technologies coming along. First of all, credit cards. The other one is GPS. And the third is cell phone. And you mix all three of those together and anybody can really be a driver. Why? Because you can pick up qualified customers and build them without having to worry about being paid. GPS will pretty much tell you where to go. And cell phones provide the mapping technology you need to get there. All of it highly automated. Now, what's interesting to me and, um, is that I wonder about the actual Uber Lyft drivers now as, as that automation extends. For example, I, I take Lyft. I take Lyft all the time now. I'm more of a wide sharer than I am a car owner. And I'm sitting in the uh, back of the car, and I had to go to an appointment, and I started reading, reading a book. And I, I noticed that we were going in the wrong direction. We're going in the wrong direction. I said to the driver, I said, no, we really are going in the wrong direction. And her response was, well, this is where the map is telling you to go. Now, what is relevant here is how far are we really, what is the purpose of that driver other than be an interpreter of map data and to manipulate the technology accordingly? And that's not that far from robotics. No, it's not. And and actually, I mean, Bob, Uber and Lyft's end game is to go autonomous, obviously, right? And take the driver out of it altogether. But Mm -hmm. it's an interesting thing. I've I've had specifically around Uber and Lyft, but they're really poster childs for this, right? When we start thinking Mm -hmm. about the future of autonomous vehicles, we start thinking Mm -hmm. about what really is what is the disruption in Uber? You mentioned three key technologies, but mm-hmm. is Uber really a technology disruption company or is Uber a company that is that 
was disru- what it disrupted was by taking advantage of all of the excess excess uh, vehicles and you know time that drivers have and putting that to you know good use and and so was that the true disruption there or was it the the technology that was the disruption and part and parcel with that technology is the automation right i think the disruption the aggr- it's the aggregation of the technology which is the disruptive now what is being disrupted i think there's a fundamental social disrupt- social disruption going on the rules of existing as a as a an, an employee or a wage earner or a value creator in society is changing and Uber, you know, Uber's, Uber's apparent in terms of uh, uh, transportation because it's everywhere. You see everybody getting in those Uber cars. But that's really inconsequential compared to the larger impacts of tech, uh, transportation. So, for example, container shipping is uh, the Swedes uh, just released a vote. And, I, and again, I, people can write me and I'll give them the exact data because I don't have it in front of me. But I believe it's called the Birkin. And that's a large container ship that's completely robotic. So imagine how much container containers get shipped on the open seas that have crews. Now those crews will go away. The same is with trucking. Trucking is really low hanging fruit. There are three million truck drivers, and Uber is active in the trucking, um, automate, automated trucking uh, industry. So they're looking to automate make that, and that's going to have a disruption. I wrote the last article I wrote for you all is called "Coming Apart in the Age of Automation," and what the the unintended impact here is that we really are creating a bifurcated society in which one class has can master the technology or becomes the merit class, and the other class is just sort of hanging on. And it's a sad thing to say, but it, it, it is true. And as we look around current events, we can see that more and more. Now, the good news here is that we're in a, we are in a good position. And what I mean by that is that if we go back and we look at the history of technology, uh, particularly around the advent of uh, mass production and consumer technology, which is really the automobile. The automobile really was a game changer because it was intended to be a consumer product once Henry Ford figured out how to do the assembly line. And because it became a consumer product, it really lifted the whole middle class. It became, if you were coming off a farm in Georgia, you could go to Detroit and without having to learn a whole lot of new skills, become a wage earner in a factory. That's So that was, that's good. Nobody really understood the impact of the internal combustion engine back in 1900 and 1910, that in a hundred years, this would have significant impact. And what I hope we've learned along the way is that technology does have an impact, both uh, sociological and economic. And we can start planning for that accordingly. Sadly, what I'm not hearing is that planning. People, you know, the, the argument is, well, there are always, technology will, yes, will always displace people. There are no more people picking up, you know, horse dung on the streets of New York. Those people went to work in factories, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, technology destroys jobs, but it creates more jobs. But we're not, Hearing any sort of ancillary planning of what the downside might look like, and if there is a downside, which there might very well be, how we're going to address that. Yep. I 
you know, Bob, so I, maybe I'm cynical in my old age. I, unfortunately, planning is, is not our long suit, right? We live in a financial world where we live quarter to quarter, week by week. You know, uh, a bad quarter can cost a CEO their job and, and lose trillions or billions, not trillions, but billions of dollars of market capitalization. Uh, the fact of the matter is, if you believe, you know, the, the media, most people in our age group, Bob, have not uh, put away enough money for retirement. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, we... <laughs> We, we don't believe in science or truth, and, and so we can't even plan around what to do about climate change. Uh, why should this be any different? Well, I, I, I don't know if I agree with your assessment completely. Okay. Um, because I just got through uh, reading a book by uh, Harari. Um, uh, it's, about, about, it's an assessment of current conditions and future. And People forget that famine and people dying of starvation, even 50 to 60 years ago, was a common day event. A lot people in China starved to death. That really did happen. People in Ireland in 1840, when the potato famine came along, they starved to death. You didn't have enough food and you died. Start death due to starvation is still around, but it's not commonplace. Nowhere near the condition that it used to be. The other thing is when we look at warfare, yes, there are wars going on and there are, there are regional wars, but there hasn't been a war on the scale of World War II since World War II. So there's stuff going on that sort of gets hidden behind all the, uh, what would we say, the fascination with the bad stuff. The, uh, the other thing to think about in terms of us as technologists is that there Planning is still part of the industrial fabric. What do I mean by that? It takes five years to design and manufacture a car. Uh, I learned this when I worked at Edmonds. Pretty much if you start looking at model years, the, the big model changes are in the fifth year. Pretty much if you came out with a car A, in year one you'll have A, then year two, what used to be options become standard, and then more, more options become standard. And then by year five, you have enough research in place and more, enough retooling of factories in place to create a new vehicle and put it on the market and sell it. So industry and does have the ability to plan. I mean, just look, I mean, if we look at SpaceX, bringing that rocket back in the, just being able to send a rocket up, you know, one of those uh, cylinder rockets, right, that you used to imagine from the 50s, right, goes up and we used to just blow them up and leave them in space. Now we can actually bring them down and allow that piece of pipe with rocket fuel in it to land safely on, on land. That's pretty amazing. You can't plan that in three months. That takes years and years and years of planning. So we have the ability to plan. The question is, in terms of our social um, imperatives, and that becomes a real question. So why, what's stopping people from saving? What's, why are people afraid? Why is fear so high now? And then also going back to as jobs, as we can call them low-skilled job, jobs, 
start being eliminated from the landscape because rote work is always easiest to replace, thinking work is harder, then what do we do about that? And there are people out there offering solutions, but they are pretty dramatic. And I, the, there's two, and they, they're dramatic and even start contemplating that really requires a lot of courage. The first one is, is that there's a good case to be made that we are at the end of the consumer-based economy. Again, let's go back to Ford. You know, an automobile for everybody changed everything. And when you look at it, you know, how many cars can Bill Gates drive? Well, if indeed he had 365 cars in his garage, he could drive a different one every day. The fact is he probably doesn't. And he probably seems to be going So really, and in the future, you know, we're all going to be showing costs. So this notion of, um, ha- of being, I didn't do a good job explaining that. In other words, what I'm saying is that a lot of people having devices and technology is what makes the economy run. Everybody needs a cell phone. Having mass uh, distribution of cell phones makes the economy run. Having mass distribution of food makes the economy run. Mass distribution, mass distribution, mass distribution. Well, at some point now, what's happening is we can produce as much as we like. Production is no longer a problem. 200 years ago, production was a problem. The factories couldn't make the stuff fast enough. Now the factories can. So now we have infinite production, which means we have infinite consumption, which means we have a problem with too much plastic in the water and too much carbon monoxide in the air. Bob, I'm, I'm going to butt in here if you don't mind. Okay. So I, I just got back from China last month. Okay. This is a real problem there, right? Because this is – they're living it, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and you know, we look at the world steel's mar- steel market and tariffs and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of it is being driven by China has built overcapacity, mm-hmm. right, in terms of mm-hmm. what they could actually use and even sell at a decent margin. In terms mm-hmm. of steel, but not just steel. They are right. producing solar panels, cellular mm-hmm. phones. They just, in other words, they they are the kings of this. Hey, we'll produce as much as we possibly can right. produce because we're going to, you know, if we're not going to consume it, we're going to sell it in the world market. And if we can't make a profit on it, well, we're not capitalists anyway, right? But an interesting an interesting dichotomy that I saw there was that they still are manually labor intensive in certain things. So their streets are pretty clean in the cities and the Mm -hmm. streets are clean because on every street, there's a cadre of people walking around with bamboo poles and palm fronds kind of thing, Mm -hmm. literally sweeping the streets and they mm-hmm. sweep it into a pile, and then some other person comes by, and they have all these uniforms, and they and it comes by on a machine like a Zamboni machine, except it's a vacuum, and sucks mm-hmm. up what these people sweep. It's almost like busy work to me. Mm-hmm. But what was fascinating to me is that on one end, I took the bullet train from Shanghai to, to Beijing, right, at 300 and something kilometers an hour. And all I could see out the window, Bob, were endless cranes and towers going up, right? Not mm-hmm. just a building, but cities and towns being built mm-hmm. one after the next. Mm-hmm. And all built around factories. They're like old factory towns they kind of looked like, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So 
they they got the the infinite capacity to build thing, but I really question the infinite capacity to pay for things to consume these things. I right. Mean, well, you hit it. Yeah, you, well, you hit it on the head, the head. Is that the notion of it's the notion of payment? That that's that's sort of like it's like an assumption that we might have to start questioning, which leads into the second point that I was going to bring up. You read my mind, Alan, and do me a favor when you're reading my mind, just clean <laughs> up after yourself. Okay. Um, right. So the first point is we have to start examining the role of consumption as a driver of, a, of an economy. We, we just got to start looking at that. And that's a big question with incredible uh, ramifications. The second one becomes this notion of paying for stuff in order to get what you want. And um, to, to, let, me, well, to, let me share a, a real life funny. We, my wife has decided that she needs, she wants to get rid of a chair we never use. It's a nice leather chair that we never ever use. And we paid, I think, $600. Whatever it was, was too much. I'm not a decorator, but she paid it. And now she's saying, I want, I want to sell it for $200. And so she puts the ad out on Craigslist and nobody's buying it. Nobody's buying it. Why isn't anybody buying? Because my suspicion is it's a good price for a $600 chair, but they can get them for free. They can okay. get probably an equal chair for free. And if you look at the cell phone, I mean, we're giving away cell phones. We're giving, we're giving it all away. We really are. And so this notion of what you're saying is how are people going to pay for it? Probably they're not. Either one of two things are going to happen. Either the buildings are going to be left unoccupied, if indeed there's a downward recession, or the alternative is to blast credit into the economy to create money uh, and to have that money become a purchasing agent. Is there wealth created? Is there value created? I don't know about that. I don't know about that. Is there transact? Are there transactions created? Yes. So I'm being long-winded by saying that it might become time to start looking at a serious examination of universal basic income. And but let's just sprinkle the fairy dust for a moment. And let's sprinkle the fairy dust and say that we've just come, everything's great. Everybody's just calmed down. They understand that automation is great and we let machines have their way. And machines just can do just about everything now. And every week, you know, you get a check in the mail that allows you to, you know, go down to the grocery store or better yet, call up, uh, go interact with Amazon Prime and the drone shows up with your food and you go to your TV set and there's your streaming TV. And some people decide they want to be philosophers, musicians, or, or brain surgeons, and other people just decide they want to sit around and play video games all that. There's our future, right? Is that so bad? Is that so bad? And people say, well, how will we innovate? How will we go forward? And my question, and I don't have an answer for this, is I wonder if somebody gets into something like brain surgery for the money or curing disease for the money. Maybe the recognition, we don't know. But the notion of universal basic income, if you take away the moral um, reservations about you know, the moral, what would they call it, uh, the moral risk, right, um, becomes viable. The, the, the sad thing is, is that any the experiments that have been are being tried don't really aren't real world. And what do I mean by that? In they tried in Canada to run UBI, and I can get the details and mail it to your listeners if they want it. They're running uh, UBI on $1,000 a month. Everybody, the, the, the test group got $1,000 a month. Well, gee, I mean, 
can you really live on a thousand dollars a month? That's one thing. Whereas if you go to another country that has universal basic income and the poster child is Cyprus, Cyprus gives every citizen 500 euros a month. The reason it's relevant here is that a rent of an apartment in Cyprus is only 520 euros a month. So 500 euros a month becomes between with two people, 1,000 euros a month becomes a viable um, amount to have a reasonable standard of living. That, that's where UBI needs to be. We need to be starting to talk about UBI numbers in the area of 40, 50, $60,000 a year per family. And then we have to deal with the ramifications. And the ramifications really aren't so much economic as they are social. What happens when you move the social structures that work provides? In other words, what happens when a whole society no longer has to get up in the morning and go to work? What happens then? And th th that becomes the danger point because most people have no idea. Huh. Excellent. I, I think, I think, yeah. I, I, yeah. I don't disagree with you there. Well, yeah, and I'm, I'm not looking for conflict or disagreement. This is a great discussion. But mm -hmm. to, for, for our listeners out there, the point is we are in technology. We are the people that write the scripts. We are the people that do the automation. We are the people that are making the robots. We're doing all this. And we're in a good position now because unlike Henry Ford, who really didn't think it through with regard to what an automobile would do over a period of 100 years. Whereas the, one of the engineers at Sony did in terms of television, a friend of, mine, a friend of mine's wife's father worked at Sony and he raised a question to one of his engineers back in, I think it was the 80s. And he said, you know, we're selling a lot of Trinitrons. What are we gonna do when these all come back? And that we, at least he posed the question. So if anything for the listeners out there that I hope they consider is, what do we do when we become very good at all this? What do we do when we've created a framework and a fabric of automation where human labor almost becomes unnecessary? What do we do then? And what are the ideas behind that? And that's where I wish there was more conversation, at the least. And not beyond there will always be more jobs or you know the fantastic stuff, but real concrete, well-researched conversation. Excellent. Bob, I'd like to continue this conversation, but we are so way over our time. Oh, I'm sorry. It's okay. Sorry. We're going to need to pick it up on a, on another okay. of Bob's chat, which is great. How about next month? We'll, pay, we'll, we'll do it again? Sure. Sure. Yeah, I'll do that. I'll make the coffee. The dog's been very good here. He's been very quiet. He understands that he's being reported, so... Yeah. Otherwise, we'll automate him out of a job. Yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, Bob Wrestleman, role Bob, author, futurist, uh, commenting, commenting on, on the state of the world today. Thanks for being our guest on this DevOps chat. We'll, we'll continue this conversation on a, another DevOps chat soon. But for now, this is Alan Schimmel, and you've just listened to a DevOps chat. Have a great day, everyone. 